0: This is Macro Horizons Monthly Episode 26, Hotel QE Forever, presented by BMO Capital Markets, I'm your host, Margaret Cairns, here with Ian Linging, Greg Anderson, Stephen Gallo, Dan Creter, Ben Reitzes, Dan Belton, and Ben Jeffrey from our FIC Macro Strategy team to bring you our debate on the impact of the massive fiscal and monetary policy regime changes underway and whether or not global central banks will ever actually be able to extricate themselves from the market and what this implies for U.S. and Canadian rates, high-quality spreads, and foreign exchange. Each month, members from BMO's FIC Macro Strategy team join me for a roundtable focusing on relevant and timely topics that impact our markets. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at margaret.carens at bmo.com with questions, comments, or topics you would like to hear more about on future episodes. We value your input and
1: appreciate your ideas and suggestions. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. There
0: are several regime shifts underway. Most notable, of course, is the combination of massive global and monetary accommodation and fiscal support and the dependence of global economies and markets on this support. The stimulus began as a bridge to weather the pandemic storm, but is now shifting into longer term growth initiatives in some economies with potential implications for improving the structural issues that remain in some of these countries. So this naturally brings up the question of whether this reliance on fiscal and monetary stimulus can actually ever be withdrawn in a fashion that resembles the past.
2: I think that there's a short answer to this question, and the answer is no. We have seen it after the last financial crisis and how challenging it was for the Fed to even attempt to normalize monetary policy before we had specific episodes of reserve scarcity. If we look at the experience of the BOJ as well as the ECB, I think it's safe to assume that the Fed is going to be involved in financial markets for quite some time. At this stage, I think the most the Fed can hope for is to not be in a position where they're forced to extend into either different asset classes or a more rapid increase of their balance sheet. In an ideal world, the Fed should be able to slowly move toward tapering in the beginning of 2022, wind down QE, and move forward to lift off rate hike at some point. I struggle to imagine that they will be within the next five years in a position where they will let the balance sheet organically start to shrink the way that they did toward the end of the last expansion. That said, there's no question that this is an actively debated topic at this point.
3: I don't think you even have to look at the BOJ. I think you just have to look at what happened to the Fed in 2019. I mean, it's not like the economy was roaring along until COVID arrived. Like, The Fed tried to normalize their balance sheet from $4.5 They got it down maybe $750 billion at most. And all of a sudden, the system started to fall apart. I mean, the Fed first cut rates in, what was it, June 2019. It just goes to show how dependent financial markets can become on the central bank. And now $4.5 seems like nothing compared to where the balance sheet is now. I have a hard time envisioning, not just in the next five years, the Fed really ever being able to meaningfully decrease the size of that balance sheet. And the question for me becomes, what does that mean? If in 2019, we started to see these cracks appear as the Fed starts to run down their balance sheet, even just a little bit, are we going to be looking at asset valuations through
2: the context of the size of the Fed's balance sheet in the next, say, decade? Another thing I think it's important to think about in this context is $4.5 in terms of the Fed's balance sheet today isn't what it was in 2019 simply because of reserve growth and simply because of the growth of currency in circulation. So, while there is some implied sticker shock related to the absolute numbers, the true target of neutrality is a moving one.
0: Let's put some numbers on it. The Fed's soma account now tops 7 trillion including almost $5 trillion in U.S. Treasuries. The Fed owns 28% of the Treasury coupon market outstanding. And in 2020, the Fed sent $86.9 billion in profits back to the U.S. Treasury as required by the Federal Reserve Act. So putting that in context, total interest payments on Treasury debt it's over 500 billion and just under 100 billion of that is being sent back to treasury from the federal reserve so 7 trillion those are still big numbers right in the context of total debt outstanding you're looking at 28% of the coupon market that is being financed by the fed
2: Well, historically, even before the Fed jumped into QE during the last financial crisis, the Fed still owned a reasonable amount of the Treasury market simply through their basic functioning. That said, it was nowhere near the levels that it is right now. You make a great observation about the Federal Reserve system kicking money back to the Treasury Department, which in effect, or at least optically, might appear to be a reduction of the net interest costs. However, there is potentially an impact associated with that in terms of the valuations of the dollar. The interesting issue there, Ian, is what happens if everybody else
4: is doing the same thing at the same time? Then maybe the dollar doesn't go down, or at least it doesn't go down against other currencies. The thing that I would point out, though, is, well, if people lose faith in money because they can see that it's just being created so rapidly, they tend to move to something else. One of the first things that people would move to is real estate. And of course, maybe we're seeing the first signs of that already. And maybe that is the factor that ultimately pushes central banks away from such rapid money creation. But I'm sort of in agreement that this is not something that either the Fed or any other central bank is going to back away from quickly. And so we're looking at years before they reach that conclusion.
0: And that's part of one of the regime changes that we've seen with Janet Yellen in the Treasury basically focusing on the cost of the debt service rather than the total amount of debt relative to GDP, which is a huge, huge regime change.
2: I think that's akin, but not directly related to one of the other regime changes that we've seen the Fed at least attempt to undertake in this cycle, and that is to Go from a central bank with a very strong track record of fighting inflation to a central bank with the potential for a reasonable track record of creating inflation. That's going to be a big regime change for the Fed in the event that they can pull it off. If we look at the Treasury market at this point, what we see with investors pulling forward rate hikes every time there appears to be an acceleration of growth is a market that is responding to the Fed based on essentially the assumption that we're still in the prior regime rather than listening to what monetary policy makers are saying insofar as they're going to be willing to accept a moderate amount of inflation above the 2% goal over an extended period of time. There is going to be some type of rationalization between those two views at some point. I doubt, however, that that will be a 2021 story.
5: And Ian, this brings up a major question that I think all of us have been receiving over the past several weeks, and that is, How are we going to be wrong in this situation? What is it going to take to see the Fed allow this market pricing of more aggressive normalization to be brought forward and not push back against the idea that inflation is coming and they will move to offset it? And to me, what jumps out is we will start to need to see a pickup in realized inflation to start to get more in line with some of the lofty expectations that we're seeing both in survey-based measures and in market-based ones. With Core CPI at just 0.7% on a three-month annualized basis, I think it's fair to say that we're a long way from an inflation regime where the Fed will start to allow normalization to meaningfully pick up in terms of the market discourse.
0: And the regime change surrounding inflation does have implications possibly for not only for the timing of an eventual liftoff, but for the pace of that liftoff. As we know, inflation typically lags the monetary policy stimulus by 6 to 12 months. And that implies that the Fed at some point might be behind the inflation curve. And there are implications for market pricing.
2: Certainly, especially if we assume that the Fed won't find themselves in a position to respond in the context of their new framework to rising inflation until the inflation is indisputably in the system. So unlike in the past where the Fed might have managed to forward inflation expectations, waiting for it to be realized, as you point out, Margaret, puts the Fed decidedly behind the curve in combating it. And so that implies that when they do start moving, that they will have to move more dramatically and potentially to a higher terminal rate. Although I'd argue we're still early enough in the process and there are material headwinds to true demand-side inflation that we might not ultimately find ourselves in a position where the Fed is scrambling to catch up with the realities of the performance of the economy.
6: Yeah. And Ian, with respect to the corporate market, I think if the Fed does find itself behind the curve with respect to inflation, that's one of the greatest risks that we're viewing to credit spreads. The Fed has been the primary reason that corporations have taken on so much debt at such cheap levels. And back to Margaret, your point about Secretary Yellen talking about the difference between the amount of debt to GDP versus debt service costs. While it's true that debt service costs are probably more important today, for the Fed to remove any accommodation because of the emergence of inflation would really result in a significant sell-off in credit spreads because these higher borrowing costs would feed through to corporate profitabilities. And that could have serious impacts for the corporate market, both in credit spreads and also equities.
3: Well, I think an important point to make here on this regime change is, yes, I agree, when compared to previous Fed regimes, this is a regime change. The Fed is telling us they're going to basically be willing to be behind the inflation curve, which also means they may have to react more strongly in future years. But I think another important regime change is They have a lot more ammo to deal with inflation at this point. And I'm not even referring to faster rate hikes. We talked earlier about the huge SOMA portfolio. If inflation ever got to be a problem, they could just more actively run down that SOMA portfolio and pretty quickly stamp out any inflation, I would think. So for me, the more concerning thing for the Fed is what if we do all this and inflation doesn't come? I mean, we've talked a lot about the demographic challenges of inflation, and I think technology, it's well-covered ground here, but it has a profound disinflationary impact. And so for me, the bigger concern isn't the Fed being behind the inflation curve. It's what happens if inflation ultimately
2: doesn't come. Well, I'd argue that the Fed has also tried to step in front of what market participants should be anticipating as an important trigger to get monetary policy tightening back on the table. Specifically, the lessons learned from the last financial crisis have shown that the unemployment rate for the low to middle wage earners is key in terms of timing wage pressures, and subsequently true demand-side inflation, which is what the Fed is focused on far more so than any transitory headline increases or base effects comparable to what we'll see over the next three or four months. So when we think about inflation getting out of control from the Fed's perspective, that presupposes a much tighter labor market than we're likely to see over the course of the next two or three years.
0: So Ian, those are some great points, and it brings me back to something that Greg had mentioned earlier, where he said, what happens if everyone else is doing the same thing with regard to central banks and fiscal policy? And one of the themes that is creeping up in the market is the topic of monetary policy divergences globally, and how real are these divergences, and what is the implication for the markets?
4: So Margaret, in terms of divergences that we have seen thus far, I'm going to argue that there haven't been any divergences. So everybody went to a zero interest rate policy and substantial quantitative easing a year ago, and they have stayed there. Where we're starting to see divergences is markets pricing in rate hikes within two years in in some places. So for example, in the FX swap market, basically 20 basis points of Fed rate hikes priced in one to two years out from now. Also in Australian dollar, that's priced in. And where you might see the divergence is, look, it seems like some central banks are pushing back against pricing and rate hikes anytime near that soon. Certainly the RBA has done that, where the Fed hasn't pushed back as vehemently. These are really small and subtle divergences. The other place where you might see at some point a divergence, although we haven't seen it yet, is the ending or the tapering of quantitative easing. Probably a long ways off, but it's an important divergence. And if somebody were to accelerate or increase QE at this point, that would be an important divergence.
5: Yeah, thanks, Greg. I think one of the things that struck a chord with me was your comment about the Fed's path towards tapering. Because I think when you look at some of the vulnerabilities, for example, in portions of the emerging market space, possibly you could throw Europe into the mix. One of the things that really matters is the extent of the monetary policy surprise in the United States. So to the extent that the Fed surprises markets with hawkishness or somehow on the path towards normalization, that's where I think there could be problems for some of the more vulnerable portions of EM, possibly even Europe. So I think the monetary policy surprise factor matters a great deal. As things currently stand, we expect that the Fed will do its utmost and will do a good job telegraphing the normalization process. But if anything gets in the way, which surprises financial markets. That could be a problem for some of the emerging markets, particularly those that have a high exposure to a rise in, in U.S. interest rates. In particular, I think one of the things that I've pointed out, and we've talked about many times on these recordings, on these podcasts, is the buildup of foreign currency debt since the global financial crisis. And every time we have another situation where the Fed has to be proactive getting involved, we see that reliance and that buildup of debt increase further. So there are definitely some real vulnerabilities in the global economy. Those vulnerabilities are probably made worse if for some reason we have a persistent overshoot in inflation. But assuming we don't have that, I absolutely agree with you. As the Fed telegraphs the normalization process, there are some central banks that will probably try to go the other way or to indicate that their path to normalization is going to be delayed relative to the Fed's
2: How much of that do we think is actually based solely on the process out of the pandemic, i.e. vaccinations, efforts toward herd immunity, and more a structural issue about the divergence in performance of economies. I think that this does raise an interesting debate for policymakers. Could one use a broader acceptance of different monetary policy regimes at this stage to make up for some of the pre-pandemic differences in consumption and inflation?
5: What you're suggesting is that there are two elements of the recovery. One is the reopening, and the other one is legacy issues. So assuming we see progress towards reopening in a number of economies globally, then the factor that you're left with is the legacy issues. I would just point to China. I mean, there are many, many examples, but China is a great example because it's such an important economy. They're clearly battling with a leverage issue in China, which is why we've seen policymakers in China recently, reach for macroprudential levers to slow the pace of leverage growth. So, that is a legacy issue for China. China is well and truly ahead of the Western world when it comes to reopening and dealing with the after effects of the pandemic. But the legacy issue, which China battles with, is the buildup of leverage. And I think that's why there has been an idiosyncratic macroprudential policy response, if you like, in China to explain that. So that's one good example, I think.
4: The other and the bigger legacy issue is diverging what seem to be natural inflation rates, where in the U.S. you're looking at something like a percent and a half. Inflation seems to be equilibrium at this point. Shy of the Fed's 2% target, but only a half percent shy. But for Europe, we're looking at what seems to be a natural inflation rate somewhere between a half and 1%. And for Japan, it's probably about zero. As a result of these issues, this is where backing away from extraordinary easing, the market has to assume that the Fed will back away faster than these other central banks if they ever do back away.
6: One exception to that, Greg, would be Canada, where the market is pricing a meaningfully more aggressive Bank of Canada than pretty much any other central bank in the world. Tapering is going to come here first, but partially due to technical reasons, because the Bank of Canada already owns 40% of the uh, government of Canada market. So that has created big problems. And so they do have to pull back there. But the tapering that's likely coming later this month, is just going to fan those flames even more that the bank's going to be pulling back on stimulus even sooner. But going back to Margaret's original question, which is how are central banks going to extricate themselves from all this, I don't see a way. The Bank of Canada will be in the Canada market for the foreseeable future. Even if not providing net stimulus, they'll need to reinvest the proceeds of maturities for almost as far as the eye can see because government issuance is going to be, even as deficits shrink, maturities are still going to be huge rolling over this pandemic debt. So the bank will have to consistently be involved, and I don't see how any other central bank in the world is going to be any different. I guess the hope would be that maybe their share of any individual market kind of whittles away over time, but their involvement is not going to disappear anytime soon.
2: One observation that came to mind when Greg made the point about the differing inflation rates between Europe and the U.S. actually comes down to a measurement one to some extent, because if we look at the composition of inflation in the U.S., the U.S. includes OER and shelter, whereas Europe, at least on the core side, takes it out. And so I think that not only is there a measurement issue, but that also implies a Policy divergence that doesn't seem likely to be shifted anytime soon. One of the biggest surprises from my perspective is that we have seen the difference in policy responses occur so quickly during this cycle. And it strikes me that that speaks to how quickly we have gone from, as a world economy, a massive recession to a reasonably strong recovery and then we start to see the differing paths forward for the individual economies.
6: Ian, you mentioned all the fiscal stimulus coming into play here and really unprecedented from a global perspective and and for most individual countries also unprecedented. Add to that the kind of changing work environment that we've seen in most industries is it possible that while there are legacy issues and like in in Canada for example that would be household debt is an issue it's still going to be but Have things perhaps changed sufficiently that some of those legacy problems won't be an issue moving forward? I mean, things have just changed so drastically that perhaps kind of longer term productivity problems won't be there anymore. And we've kind of entered a new macro regime for the next, whatever, call it 10, 20 years.
2: I could envision a situation over the course of the next two decades where the global economy transitions into a different regime where work from home becomes more of a reality, where the fungibility of knowledge industry workers increases, and that ends up being a net dampening impact on wages. Because if you can hire someone in a low-cost area who is just as competent as someone in a high-cost area performing the same task, what we'll see is we'll see firms seek to take advantage of that under the guise of it being a benefit to the worker, and it will also serve to keep net employment costs lower. So on one side, yes, this might serve as a massive reset to some extent. However, my interpretation is that what we're seeing is a rather dramatic acceleration of a lot of the trends that were already in place. The push towards automation is another obvious one. As you point out, Ben, the adoption and embracing of the work-from-home environment, taking that to the next stage, however, this will exaggerate the difference between the upward mobility of high-skill, high-wage earners and those that the Fed has emphasized during this cycle, which is the low to medium skill and wage earners. So if anything, I believe that that pushes out the timeline for the Fed to truly attempt to normalize monetary policy during this cycle.
0: Ian, you had brought up the theme of the process of coming out of the pandemic versus structural issues that pre-existed the pandemic and the implications. And I think this ties in with what Ben was saying when we look at the just massive amount of fiscal spending in the u s, it's five point six trillion. With the possibility of an infrastructure program later in the year. And obviously, a portion of the fiscal stimulus is to get us through the pandemic period, but there's also the potential for a structural element with longer term implications for the US economy.
5: On that point, Margaret, I would just say maybe I'm going about this too simplistically, but ultimately, I think that one way we're going to be able to measure what comes next is how efficiently some governments spend the money or how inefficiently they do it. Because that, to me, will dictate, number one, with what you suggest, if there's going to be a structural change or improvement in potential growth as a result of the fiscal stimulus and the government involvement, or in a sort of Worst case scenario, the money is not spent efficiently and therefore that leads to much higher taxation, much higher regulation and a very slow growth environment over the medium term. I think you could probably start to look at different countries or economic jurisdictions and try to judge which ones are going to more efficiently spend the money than others. And I think that's an important factor to weigh.
0: Thanks, Stephen. You bring up some great points on how efficient or inefficient some of the government spending might actually end up being, which is certainly something to keep an eye on. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you to all of our BMO experts and thank you for listening. This concludes Macro Horizons monthly episode 26, Hotel QE Forever. Please reach out to us with feedback and any ideas on topics you'd like us to tackle. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. We'd like to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email at margaret.carens at bmo.com. You can listen to the show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'd appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and a review. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
1: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you, or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. Emo assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast.